Well, most years since I've been ordained in the ministry, I've sought to bring a message with an historical theme. Uh, I usually do it on the last Lord's Day of October, uh, coinciding with uh, what we often think of as Reformation Sunday. Well, last week I was away and uh, I was going to put it aside and I thought, no, I'd like to deal with a matter uh, for your attention tonight. Not so much Reformation history, but a matter of history that stands in the Reformation tradition. History is in the line upholding the truths of the Protestant Reformation. History that gave occasion for a protest in the heritage, again, of Reformation protest. The enemy of the gospel in this account was not Rome, but rather a movement that straddled both the Roman Catholic and Protestant traditions. That movement goes by the name of liberalism. There was one man in the U.S. who stood in defense of the gospel against the onslaught of his enemy of the truth. Gresham Metchen was born in Baltimore, Maryland, July 28, 1881, and served as professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary from 1906 through to 1929. A hundred years ago this year, a book was published that he authored entitled Christianity and Liberalism. I've mentioned it several times in the course of the year. It's been stirring my soul. I've read it off and on over the last year or so. And again, it's been a blessing to my heart, and I commend it heartily. Mention's premise was that liberalism was not Christianity. It was so different. They were seeking to package liberalism as a different form of Christianity, but Mechon observed that it was so different that it rendered it not Christianity at all. Now, you'd be right in asking the question, is this relevant to our own hearts and minds tonight? hundred years ago, we're not liberals. We have a reformed confession of faith. This church is not infected by liberalism. Praise God for that. But it's still relevant. Most of you will live with neighbors who are part of mainline Protestant denominations. Those denominations are absolutely infected with liberalism. And it's important that we understand the premises of, again, those denominations, that we seek to bring the word of God to them as we would to any other false religion, whether it be Catholicism, Hinduism, Islam, or Protestant liberalism, we must bring the word of God with knowledge to their minds. It's also worth noting that the spirit of liberalism, uh, again, that rose 100 plus years ago, 150 years ago or thereabouts, that spirit is still present in the attacks upon God's moral standards in the word of God. The doctrinal stuff is still under attack, but now questions are being asked regarding the Bible's authority regarding morals. It's another way in which liberalism is attacking the gospel and the truth of the word of God. Mitchin's context should really take us back to February 1920. And a thing that was known as the Philadelphia Plan. I think it's important to know this. this is local history. The Philadelphia Plan was concocted in February 1920 when representatives from 18 denominations met in Philadelphia under the title of the Council on Organic Unity of Evangelical Churches in the United States. It's not very catchy, but that was their idea. They were seeking 18 denominations, trying to bring together unity. The resulting 
decision of that body was that the mainline denominations would unite as the United Church of Christ in America. Metzen's denomination at that time was the Presbyterian Church USA. You well know a very liberal denomination in our own times. But Metzen was part of that denomination and they, along with others, embraced the plan at their General Assembly in 1920 and sent this Philadelphia plan to their presbyteries for further approval. One man says this, Like many pleas for ecclesiastical unity before and since, The 1920 plan was steeped in vague, shallow and imprecise language. We always find that. Even Jews and Catholics together. You make the language imprecise and vague and you can have unity but it's not unity in truth. This man continues. Although it failed to achieve the support of majorities of presbyteries, a line had been crossed. By seeking union with many non-reformed denominations, and by including Christian traditions as diverse as Methodists, Quakers, and Moravians, the Philadelphia Plan effectively displaced the Westminster Standards and rendered elements of historic Christianity as things indifferent. The theological language which held such a union together was essentially liberal and modernist. Now, when I use the term liberalism, again, I'm not describing moral liberalism. You know, sometimes we talk people and their, their dress code or their music tastes or things like that. Or they're, they're liberals. We're using the term in a, in a very pure historical sense, describing the movement arising out of higher criticism. When there was a sceptical examination of the Bible, especially those historical claims to the miraculous, even doubting a supernatural view of Scripture. Mitch understood that liberalism and Christianity are not the same thing. Friday passed, November the 3rd, 102 years ago, Machen gave an address before the ruling elders of the Chester Presbytery, just outside of Philadelphia in this area. That address in 1922 was published in the Princeton Theological Review and then expanded along with some other articles of Machen's to become Christianity and liberalism published in 1923. It is and will be a definitive book of Christian protest now and in coming days. The book is divided into seven chapters. There is an introduction, a chapter in doctrine, one in God and man, one in the Bible, one in Christ, one in salvation, and one upon the church. Liberalism is distinct from Christianity. When it comes to man and God, it taught the goodness of man. And a concept known as the universal fatherhood of God. You you heard that? That's a liberal doctrine. All men are the sons of God. Christianity, of course, on the other side, defines man as being sinful. Children of Adam and in need of a redeemer. When it comes to liberalism, faith is essentially a spiritual experience. Whereas to the Christian, true religious experience depends upon the truth of the historical events in the Bible. To the liberal, Christ is a great teacher and an example. But to the Christian, he is the sinless, divine, supernatural saviour. For the liberal, salvation is the pursuit of personal betterment. Following the example, perhaps, of Christ's self-sacrifice. Where again, to the believer, to the Christian, salvation requires propitiation. 
and the appeasement of God's wrath and the satisfaction of God's justice. We saw around the table this morning. To the liberal, the church is a mere social movement. Whereas to the Christian, it's a redeemed, unified community of worshippers. The distinctions were vast and still are today. Liberalism is not a different form of Christianity. It is not Christianity at all. And so often said, the best word in Machen's book was the word and in the title. That set the marker down. These are not two of the same things. These are distinct thoughts. One true biblical, the other unbiblical and a false religion. And my concern today is to emphasize that these things are still vitally important. I can't go through all of this. I don't plan to go through all of it tonight. And again, it would be worthwhile on its own to consider the subject of the Bible and the authority of the Word of God. But what I want to do is I want to think about the importance of the gospel history and the nature of true salvation and the need for faith in Jesus. Not just following his example, but putting our trust in him. Now, I want to consider the importance of these things from Acts 10 and 11 in the example of the Apostle Peter because 2,000 years earlier, he was in no doubt as to the nature of these things. A spirit-filled, inspired man who understood the necessity to stand upon the historical claims of the gospel. In Acts 10, we are introduced to Cornelius. Back in Acts 10, verse number 2, we're told that Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. He gave alms to the people and prayed to God always. We might read those words and conclude that surely Cornelius must have been a saved man. But we find him sitting here in a transition period in redemptive history. He certainly had proselytized to Judaism and certainly had an affiliation with the Jewish faith. But of course we know that such external religion is not synonymous with true salvation. Religion saves no one. When Nicodemus comes to Christ in John 3, it's clear that even the most religious men must be born again. And if that's true for Nicodemus, it can also be true for Cornelius. Cornelius and Nicodemus are very similar in the language of Acts 10 and the verse number 2. You must be born again. You see, when you get to chapter 11, we find Peter defending his actions in chapter 10. There's a controversy here. There's an issue at stake. What are you doing, Peter, by eating with those who were uncircumcised? Again, you will know these two chapters are vital, really, in the book of Acts. And indeed, in the unpacking of God's purpose for the redemption of the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, God's primary purpose was the salvation of the people of God. And they were gathered in a national entity, the nation of Israel. So the gospel comes to the Jew first. Christ's ministry is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily a ministry to the Jews. And the apostles at the commencement of the church began at Jerusalem among those who are part of the Jewish nation. The Jew first, and then the Greek. And so Acts 10 and 11 well, we really see the fulfillment of the then to the Greek. And the purpose of these chapters is given to us in Acts 11 verse 18. Where you see, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That's what we're meant to see at the end of Acts 10 
And then secondly, halfway down through uh, chapter 11, the gospel is also for the Gentiles. God, by a series of miraculous visions and communications, brought Peter into Cornelius' life. And it was through Peter that Cornelius came to know Christ. And in knowing Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon him and his house. You know, I don't think we can really fully appreciate the implications of that event. It shook the people in Judea to their core, the apostles and brethren. They were shocked to the core in verse number 1 of chapter 11. And they summons Peter to defend himself. Well, as part of that defense... He recounts the words told to Cornelius by the angel. Our text is there, verse 14, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now, I was thinking really of what to, to preach. I wanted to cover this issue of Christianity and liberalism tonight. And I was thinking during the week past, well, uh, what's, what's a perfect text to cover this issue? And I think this is it. The necessity of the communication of clear words, whereby those that hear those words and believe in those words can indeed be saved. Peter was coming to Cornelius' house to explain the gospel to a religious man who wasn't saved. It's when the words come that then Cornelius comes to saving knowledge of the Lord. So I want to think about these words. Just three simple thoughts regarding these words that I think highlight the issues between Christianity and liberalism today and in the days of Machen. First of all, please note the historical content of the words. Again, we read the words together in chapter 10, and these are words, again, where Peter explains things, presuming the historical accuracy of his words. They're words regarding Christ Jesus. And every fact he presents is a fact of human history. He begins by summarizing the identity of Christ. That's the first thing you see. He summarizes Christ's identity in verse number 36. The word which God sent, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Now there are three words here regarding the identity of our Savior, each of which is significant. His name is Jesus now that word, the name given to him by the Lord and then given by Joseph upon the birth of his son, his name is Jesus, presupposes the historical reality of a person called Jesus. He was indeed born in Bethlehem. Now Peter here does not specify the virgin birth. It's assumed in this account it's clearly assumed in the account, but not specified here. But what is specified is the historical nature of this person called Jesus. His name is Jesus. Of course, the liberals hate the virgin birth. Of course, it's true that even the language used here in verse 36, God sent unto. This word, it is a word whereby people be saved but it's also an incarnate word. It is the Son of God that comes in union with a true humanity. It is the Son of God taking humanity that then is, is called Jesus. He is the Christ. Again, the challenge of one who came to be Messiah. The liberals, they have no time really for the film of prophecy. 
But the identity of Jesus Christ rests upon the fulfillment of prophecy. That all predicted of Christ comes to pass. Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. And as such he is Lord of all. Again this is a, this is a summary statement. His name is above every name. For at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. He rules over all. He reigns over all. It's the God man here. But not only the God man. The ascended and victorious Christ. The Messiah. Who conquered and now sits upon David's throne. All of these things assumed in this summary of Christ's identity. But this summary statement in verse number 36 is then based upon the historical nature of Christ's ministry. You see, note, secondly, his identity, yes, first thing, and then secondly, his life. Verse number 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. His life. Peter announces this real man had a real ministry among real people. He does this by the power of the Holy Ghost. We think about the Lord's baptism again, an event of human history. Jesus truly was baptized of John. And on that occasion, witnesses understood, they heard the voice, they saw it happened. And Jesus is anointed with power for his earthly ministry. Now we often think of the Lord's life in terms of his obedience. And we should do that. He went about doing good. Again it's important. The moral goodness of Christ's life. Securing our righteousness. He obeys the law in every jot and tittle. There's not not one aspect of God's law that Christ does not fulfill. Fulfills all righteousness for his people. But the language here I think is explicitly referring to the Lord's earthly ministry amongst men. He went about doing good, is not only describing his perfect sinless obedience, it's also describing his miraculous works of kindness and compassion to people who could say, like the blind man, I'm not sure who this man is, but I was blind and now I see. The Lord does good in a way that was verifiable. His miracles attesting his identity. Is he the Christ? John the Baptist sends disciples. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the poor the gospel preach them. He goes about doing good in the power of the Holy Ghost. The historical nature of Christ's life. His ministry is the seal and the evidence that is indeed Jesus the Christ. And without that, without the historical nature of Christ's life, there's a gap in the evidence for the gospel. Now let me read a little bit of Machen's work here. I'm going to read some sections from this book that I think illustrate these things. Machen says this, The Jesus presented in the New Testament was clearly an historical person. So much is admitted by all who have really come to grips with the historical problems at all. But just as clearly, the Jesus presented in the New Testament was a supernatural person. Yet for modern liberalism, a supernatural person is never historical. He's getting to the core of the issue here. The liberals are saying, yes, there was this man called Jesus. But not supernatural. Mention continues. A problem arises then for those who adopt the liberal point of view. 
The Jesus of the New Testament is historical. He is supernatural. And yet what is supernatural on the liberal hypothesis can never be historical. And the problem can only be solved by the separation of the natural from the supernatural in the New Testament account of Jesus. In order that the supernatural may be rejected and what is natural may be retained. Now what happened in practice here was the liberals were saying we, we have an historical Jesus but we deny the supernatural. Therefore, they begin to cut the Bible apart and say, we'll take this bit, but not that bit. And they pour scorn upon the supernatural. And that doesn't work. And Metzger makes the point. The trouble is that the miracles are not found to be an increase or, if you like, an added addition to the New Testament account, but belong to the very warp and woof. In a summary of Peter's preaching, He emphasizes by the power of the Holy Ghost, Jesus goes about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Mason says this, they are intimately connected with Jesus' lofty claims. They stand or fall with the undoubted purity of his character that reveal the very nature of his mission in the world. Mason's making this point, that if we deny the supernatural, historical account of Jesus we have no Jesus at all no truth and no gospel hence the liberal claim of an historical Jesus who was not supernatural is not Christianity at all it's a false religion and you you may struggle with this because you have neighbors and friends who are part of such churches and I wonder do they understand what they're involved in Do they grasp in their own mind what it is to embrace a liberal understanding of the Bible? It's a denial of Christ. But back in Acts chapter 10, having thought about his identity and his life, we see thirdly then his death. And we'll come back to this in more detail in a few moments. But notice it says, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Again, Peter here is not at this point explaining the significance of Christ's death. He's describing the historical nature of his death. They took him and they hanged him on a tree. Now Paul, he gives some substance to this understanding. As we saw this morning in in Galatians chapter 3, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's understanding in the historical events that Christ bore a curse for us. He died to save mankind. He paid the debt for sin, becoming a curse for us. But of course, following his death, there is then his resurrection. Verse 40 and 41. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. This is so important. Again, Peter defends this as an event of historical accuracy. Showed him openly. Yes, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God. The witnesses who could verify that this this risen Jesus did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. These witnesses who in verse number 42 were to testify. They were to bear witness. These are legal terms used. And those who must bear witness, they must do so in truth. Defending the historical accuracy of Christ's resurrection. To Peter... And the apostles, Jesus' resurrection was not a spiritual resurrection. 
It wasn't a metaphor for the, the church arising out of his death, but it was a bodily, physical resurrection, a seal that God is pleased with his finished work. And witnesses bore testimony without doubt regarding its certainty. Now, I'm going to go back to that, but I want to mention again in verse number 42, there is one other historical event to occur. The previous events have all taken place. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, they're all in the past in Peter's mind. But without, if you like, taking a breath, he continues to assert that there will be yet a future event when Christ will return to be judge of quick and dead. Verse number 42. There's coming a day in which you will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he had ordained. But off he had given assurance unto all men in that he had raised him from the dead. Acts, Acts, Acts 17 in the verse number 31. Christ will indeed return as judge of the quick and the dead. But again, that judgment is based upon the resurrection. It's sealed by the resurrection. Paul makes that point in Acts chapter 17. The resurrection is a seal of the future return of Christ Jesus. But my point right now is to emphasize again the importance of the historical accuracy of Christ's resurrection. Mitchum makes this point. That the liberals reject also the whole supernatural content of the New Testament. And make of the resurrection just what the word resurrection most emphatically did not mean. A permanence of the influence of Jesus or a mere spiritual existence of Jesus beyond the grave. That's, that's the accusations. This resurrection, it's, it's, if you like, it's an influence or it's a spiritual existence beyond the grave. Machen says this, old words may here be used, but the thing that they designate is gone. The disciples believed this is interesting. I never thought this before. The disciples believed in the continued personal existence of Jesus. Even during the three sad days after the crucifixion. They were not Sadducees. They believed that Jesus lived and would rise at the last day. That's all that the liberals held regarding resurrection. That he lived after death and would rise again. But, says Metchen, what enabled them to begin the work of the Christian church was that they believed the body of Jesus already to have been raised from the tomb by the power of God. That belief involves acceptance of the supernatural. And the acceptance of the supernatural is thus the very heart and soul of the religion that we profess. Hence, Machen understood that the apostles and preachers in the New Testament were witnesses. He's not using Acts chapter 10. I'm using Acts chapter 10. To him, we are witnesses. Verse 41, unto witnesses chosen before of God. He commanded us to preach and to testify. I will use mention now, he says this. From the beginning, Christianity was a campaign of witnessing. And the witnessing did not concern merely what Jesus was doing within the recess of the individual life. And this was their charge. Jesus is spiritually alive and he works in people's hearts. Or at least his influence did. Machen continues. To take the words of Acts in that way 
is through violence to the context and all the evidence. On the contrary, the epistles of Paul and all the sources make it abundantly plain that the testimony was primarily not to inner spiritual facts, but to what Jesus had done once and for all in his death and resurrection. Christianity is based then upon an account of something that happened. And the Christian worker is primarily a witness. And that's what I want you to think about. Your task as an evangelist, as a personal worker, as a witness for Christ is to be such, to be a witness of those things that occurred in time and in space and in history. If so, Machen says, it is rather important that the Christian worker should tell the truth. When a man takes his seat upon the witness stand, it makes little difference what the cut of his coat is or whether his sentences are nicely turned. The important thing is that he tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If we are to be truly Christian, it does not, sorry then, it does make a vast difference what our teachings are. And it is by no means aside from the point to set forth the teaching of Christianity in contrast with the teachings of the chief modern rival of Christianity, namely liberalism. You see, the words that save, remember Acts eleven fourteen. these words that bring salvation are words regarding Christ Jesus. And it is an encouragement to us again today, tonight, to tell people who Jesus is. To tell them what he has done. To tell them what he did live in this world. He proved his existence. He proved his, his, if you like, his identity. By the works he accomplished. He is indeed the Christ who is Lord of all. Tell them about his person and work as the only hope of sinners. Tell them of his resurrection. Tell them of the evidence of that. Tell them that he's worthy of their confidence. And he will save them to the uttermost. Tell your neighbors of Christ. Your family of Christ, your workmates of Christ, and present them a Christ who is reliable and the account of the Word of God is historically accurate and reliable. That is the message of the Christian gospel. These words that save are words of history. But secondly, please note with me the theological implication of the words. Here we've got to understand the liberal notion of salvation. They denied the historical, but here they also, they undermined the nature of true salvation. To the liberal man was essentially good. And salvation was a process of betterment, self-improvement. This is in variance again to the gospel that Peter preached. Know what it says back in verse number 36. Preaching peace. Again, when Peter refers to peace, he's not referring to some social exercise of unity between people of different ethnic backgrounds. He's referring to peace that comes between God and man. Salvation is the removal of enmity between God and man. That natural enmity that comes following the fall as we are sinners in Adam. Turn across very briefly to Colossians chapter 1. Again, we could turn you, I could turn you to 2 Corinthians 5. We read that uh, this evening by Colossians chapter 1. Again, you'll see what's required here. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 20. 
and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether it be things in earth or things in heaven, it gets referring to the, if you like, the reconciliation of all redeemed of God, those in earth and in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Peace, verse number 20. Through the cross, verse number 20, is the removal of the enmity, verse number 21, that enmity that we show in our wicked works. And so salvation is God removing that enmity as dealing with our hearts and our souls and bringing us to a point that we're reconciled to God through the power of Christ's blood. That's what salvation was for Peter. Not the liberal notion, but the notion revealed by Christ himself. Words of peace. Then also back in Acts chapter 10, they are words that offer remission of sins. Again, towards the end of the sermon, verse number 46. That through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ Jesus. If I just take the time to look at this in Acts, turn to Acts 13. And the verse number 38, again, this idea of remission is involved in all the apostolic preaching. Acts 13, 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Here again, here's salvation defined. It is the offer of sins forgiveness. Over in chapter 28, or sorry, 26, sorry, verse 18. Acts 26, verse 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Again, this is the very essence of the, of the Christian gospel. It's not man getting better. It's man needing forgiveness for their sins. Not intrinsically good, but intrinsically evil and turned against God. And their great need is of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Redemption. Ephesians 1. Through his blood. This again is important because Peter and Paul and the apostles, they understood the necessity of Christ's sacrifice, of Christ being the propitiation of our sins. Forgiveness required the payment price. Forgiveness required the wrath of God being satisfied. Forgiveness required Christ dying for our sins, the Lord laying upon him the iniquity of us all. See, the liberal, they had different views regarding Christ's death. Some held to what's known as the moral influence theory. The idea that God would move Man to follow him by showing his love in Jesus. Jesus comes and he shows the love of God. He he gives himself and that's a display of God's love. Not a satisfying of God's wrath and justice. A display of God's love. And when people see the love of God seen in Christ Jesus, then then they'll follow follow the Lord. Again, there's there's elements of truth in that, of course. There There are things in that that are perhaps misunderstood. But the point was, the liberal wanted to remove thoughts of God's wrath, emphasize God's love, and thus denied the nature of Christ's atonement. Others had the idea that Christ's death was an example of self-sacrifice. How do you improve yourself? How do you better yourself? Well, you do so by self-sacrifice. By putting yourself less than others, and then you make yourself better. And they, they say, well, there's Jesus' example in that regard. 
Salvation, you see, is not a matter of personal advance or reform. But salvation involves the dealing of our sin. It's good news. You see, if I was to tell you tonight that salvation is about you doing better, reforming yourself, improving yourself. You know, you can go to churches in this area and you'll hear that sermon. Here's how to be a good neighbor. Here's how to do a better job in society. And you go away and you do okay for a day or two and then you find it increasingly frustrating. Because sin is real in your heart and you know that you cannot be good enough. Failures predominate. And what they need to hear is of the gospel where God does all the work. And they can know peace with God and sins forgiven through the work of Christ. And so we've seen the historical nature of these words. And then the theological implications of the words. And finally and briefly, the personal application of the words. Here again we come to a key issue between liberalism and Christianity. To the liberal, Christ was an example to follow. To the Christian, he is the object of faith. We are to believe in him. Verse 43. To him give all the promised witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Was Jesus an example? Of course he is. We that say he abides in us, we walk as he walks. It's First John, he is indeed an example. Of course he is. A man of sinless Perfect obedience is worthy of or following him. Following his example. Of course he is. If the word of God contained the commandments was performed by him perfectly. Of course we walk as he also walked. But that does not deny the fact we trust in Christ. Again, let me borrow some of Machen's words here. He says this. The modern liberal preacher reverences Jesus. He has the name of Jesus forever on his lips. He speaks of Jesus as the supreme revelation of God. He enters or tries to enter into the religious life of Jesus following his example. But he does not stand in a religious relation to Jesus. Jesus for him is an example for faith, not the object of faith. The modern liberal tries to have faith in God Like the faith which he supposes Jesus had in God. But he does not have faith in Jesus. The idea is we look at Jesus as one who trusted in God. Who believed in God. Who prayed to God. And you follow his faith. But according to Machen and according to modern liberalism. Jesus was the founder of Christianity. Because he was the first Christian. And Christianity consists in maintaining the religious life was Jesus instituted. Now there are several problems with this. But right at the very beginning. We've seen in Acts chapter 11, 13 and 26. That the essence of the Christian message is the forgiveness of sins. If we are to follow Jesus' faith. Then are we to follow his faith? In receiving forgiveness of sins. But he has no sins to be forgiven for. And therefore. Whilst Jesus was a man of faith. His faith is not of the same nature as ours. There are similarities. But it is not the same. 
it mentions is this. For clearly, if Christianity is, any, is anything, it is a way of getting rid of sin. And as a matter of fact, it was that from the very beginning. Whether the beginning of Christianity, sorry, whether the beginning of Christian preaching be put on the day of Pentecost or when Jesus first taught in Galilee, in either case, one of the first words was repent. Throughout the whole New Testament, the Christianity of the primitive church is represented clearly as a way of getting rid of sin. But if Christianity is a way of getting rid of sin, then Jesus was not a Christian. For Jesus, as far as we can see, had no sin to get rid of. Therefore, he can't be the first Christian. Whose example we follow, rather, he is the one who secures the forgiveness that is offered. You see, the Lord Jesus offered forgiveness. The liberal's view of Christ is different than the Bible's view of Christ. The difference, says Machen, in the attitude towards Jesus depends upon a profound difference as to the question who Jesus was. If Jesus was only what the liberal historians supposed that he was, then trust in him would be out of place. If he's only a man, a good man, or a master, then we, 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 we rightly shouldn't trust in him. Our attitude toward him, says Machen, could be that of pupils to a master and nothing more. But if he was what the New Testament represents him as being, then we can safely commit to him the eternal destinies of our souls. What then is the difference between liberalism and Christianity with regards to the person of the Lord? The essential thing can be put almost in a word. Liberalism regards Jesus as the fairest flower of humanity. Christianity regards him as a supernatural person. And you will still meet people in the street today who will say Jesus was simply a good teacher, a good example, but not this eternal son of God. If Jesus is only example, then we must not put our trust in him. But as the Son of God and Saviour sinners, then we can put our trust in him. And the fact that Acts chapter 11 verse 43 refers to faith as being believing in him shows us again that the early apostles saw him as worthy of their confidence and their trust not simply one to follow and to imitate. His example is indeed pure and glorious, but he's much more than that. He is the Son of God and the only Saviour of sinners. He's God and man, the only mediator, the only one who can reconcile man to God. He offered himself a sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice that was suitable and sufficient before the Father, whereby he rose again from the dead the third day, historically, verifiably. We can trust in him and tell others to trust in him. Liberalism destroys the gospel. The Bible exalts Christ Jesus as the one we can put our trust in. The devil will continue to spread his lies. Continue to undermine the authority of the Bible and our confidence in Jesus Christ. Praise God, we have a, a reliable word, a sure word of testimony. And our souls are safe in Christ. Trust in him tonight, please. If you don't know the Lord, make him your savior. If you have questions, concerns, doubts, misunderstandings,
Speak to somebody. Get them resolved in your mind. But do not succumb to the lies of this world. Jesus cannot be a religious teacher and example. He can only be that. If he's that, then we find him in the word of God as one who deceives, who lies about himself, because he makes himself out to be the son of God, the saviour of sinners. And his words are not false, they are true. And we must trust in him for the saving of our souls. Let's close, please, in prayer. And again, tonight, thank the Lord for the purity of the gospel, the gospel that we hold on to, delight in. Eternal God and Father, we thank you again for the revelation that we have in the word of God regarding Jesus, the one who is indeed Son of God and Saviour of sinners. We look to him afresh. We thank you again for your grace in Metzen's life those years ago, for causing him to see the nature of the controversy and causing him to stand upon the truth of the gospel. We bless you, Lord, for this. Help us to continue in this great tradition and that we also stand fast upon the truth of the word of God, that we not allow a liberal notion to creep into the church here, whether it be regarding doctrine or morals, but we stand fast upon the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Help us again tonight. Take us home in safety. May your blessing indeed rest and abide upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.